John 6, verse 60 says, Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. And from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And one of you is a devil. He who spoke, he spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him being one of the twelve. And Father, we humbly pause and as always just acknowledge that we need the help of your Holy Spirit to understand the thought and intent behind your word. Your Spirit inspired it, so Lord, there's no one who we would much rather have as the interpreter and the instructor of what was meant here than your Spirit. Lord, this is even a challenging text and portion of Scripture, so we ask, prepare us by your Spirit Give us a desire to hear your voice and we pray that your Holy Spirit teach us and speak to us and you'd bless your word to our hearts and we ask in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> you know, in this section of scripture we're going to look at together, Jesus separates those who were just casual observers from those who were actually committed followers those who were casual observers from those who were actually committed followers i think you could almost kind of uh, define the difference there those who are just a casual observer spiritually is a person who is willing to walk with jesus if everything that jesus says and does keeps it easy if it's beneficial for them personally and if it doesn't require or demand anything of them then that's okay then they're willing to continue to follow Jesus a committed follower on the other hand is a person who is devoted to Jesus no matter what they are devoted and committed to Jesus even if things become difficult in the midst of still following Jesus they're devoted and committed to Jesus uh, even when they don't understand maybe what's going on in their life or maybe even what God is doing in their present situation or circumstance. And even if it requires great trust or personal sacrifice, they will stay and follow the Lord because they're a committed follower to Jesus. And I think this text shows the differentiation between those things as Jesus says some things that sort of thin out the crowds and sort out the difference between are you just a casual observer spiritually or are you actually a committed follower of Jesus Christ? Now the background, as I said, we're in the midst of this discourse of Jesus and he has been saying some pretty interesting things to the large crowds that are now following him and seeking after him at this time. For example, we saw last time, if you glance back, verse 32, Jesus said there in the 32nd verse, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God, Jesus said, is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He then declared, verse 35, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So Jesus speaks of this reality of how Moses gave them manna from heaven, and yes, that was one thing, but Jesus said that is nothing in comparison to the true bread that the Father really wants to give to you. And he says the true bread that comes from heaven is not something, but it's someone. 
It's someone from heaven that God wants to give to humanity that can actually give spiritual and eternal life to them. Well, Jesus then declared, and I am that bread of life. I am this true bread, this bread of life that the Father is giving to you. Well, pick up with me where we left off last time, verse 41. This is what causes now the challenge. The Jews having heard this, it says, verse 41, as we continue, the Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, How is it then that he says, notice, I have come down from heaven. So because many in the crowd did not truly believe in Jesus, they were just seeking after Jesus for ulterior motives. And because they weren't really committed to Jesus, they're bothered. And they even become, it says here in our text, verse 41, critical complaining about the idea that Jesus just presented that he actually had come down from heaven to this earth sent from the father they realize jesus is claiming not only deity but that he was somehow alive in heaven before he had now come to the earth and was walking among them as a man the problem here of course is this their familiarity with jesus in his humanity having watched him grow up in nazareth and be the 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 son if you would of this family of mary and joseph and having other siblings and so forth living quite a normal human life their familiarity with jesus as a man in the flesh was stumbling their belief and their understanding of who jesus was that's why we read there in verse 42 that they were saying wait a minute is this not jesus the the son of joseph the carpenter that you know they knew uh, whose father and mother we know how, how can he say that he had come down from heaven so in their minds this caused a, a, a puzzling experience because they understood from their human perspective that jesus was from the family of joseph and Mary and from their vantage point they believe Jesus had been born out of this marriage of Mary and Joseph and and from what they thought remember many that that was where Jesus came from that he was even a child perhaps born out of wedlock and so there's kind of this stigma attached to Jesus's life and from their perspective Jesus was just a common Jewish man they had watched him grow up they saw his father and mother and family in the community and he was just too ordinary he was just too common to actually be something in any way special and they stumbled at the claims of jesus being divine or being god since they watched him grow up they said therefore verse 42 how can he say i have come down from heaven this bothered them they criticized and complained about this Now, the thing that's the stumbling block is what they did not understand or failed to realize and believe was what the Bible teaches and reveals to us of the divine conception and the the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, that Jesus was not born like every other man out of the union of Mary and Joseph physically, but that the Holy Spirit had revealed to Mary that she was going to conceive as a virgin and the power of the Most High would overshadow her and God by His Spirit would miraculously place the life of His Son Jesus Christ into the womb of this young virgin woman and that she would then as a virgin give birth to Jesus Christ as a result of this miracle conception of God putting the life of His Son in the womb of a woman so that Jesus could miraculously then be completely God and completely man at the same time so that he could provide salvation that humanity needs being in touch with divinity and at the same time in touch with and connecting with humanity and that explained how jesus therefore was alive in heaven and that at a set point in time he had then come to the earth having been born of a woman god becoming man and then living humbly as man among us and what you begin to see here in verse 41 and 42 is the people thought they knew jesus and the reality is they actually didn't they thought they knew jesus in the way they thought they knew jesus but the reality was is they really did not know jesus and the truth of the matter is sadly and scarily that is still a very good possibility today there are a lot of people who think they know jesus and the truth of the matter is they don't really know jesus 
They don't know Jesus in the way that a person is intended to know Jesus. In fact, remember, Jesus is going to say there are going to be people who are going to say to him on the day when they're on the threshold of eternity, Lord, Lord, did we not do miracles in your name and prophesy in your name? We could quote scriptures and, and we claimed you as Lord. We came forward at one of those altar calls when everybody else did and they were getting the big round of applause and, and we came forward and we did the whole thing and he's going to say, I never knew you. You may have had a psychological experience. You may have had an emotionally moving moment and felt but but nothing ever genuinely happened where you recognized who I am and how you need me as a savior in your life and you thought you knew me but you were falsely convinced that you genuinely did. And these people thought they knew Jesus. We know who he is. How could he say he's from heaven? We... They didn't know who he was. He was God. And they didn't recognize that. And this was the dilemma. And this can still be the dilemma of people to this day. Jesus came in a very ordinary way. And yet God was doing something extraordinary in a very ordinary way. And just we have to be careful. We don't ever want to dismiss the ordinary because God works through the ordinary. And God works through what's natural at times, even doing something very supernatural. Well, Jesus, verse 43, seeing this, it says, he answered them and said to them, do not murmur among yourselves. So Jesus being concerned because he loves them. He loves all of humanity. He's concerned for their condition that they might miss out on salvation and what God has intended for their lives. He now counsels them in verse 43 here. Notice to stop complaining and grumbling over what? Over what they don't understand. Over what they can't grasp logically. Again, let us remember the ways of God are not always 100% logical. They're just not. The ways of God and how God works cannot always be reasoned out mentally. It does not mean that we can't reason things out. God's given us a mind. It's, it's good to, to understand things theologically, mentally, have a proper understanding. But the Bible also tells us that his ways are beyond our ways. His thoughts are beyond thinking out. And if ever I can reduce God to I have him completely figured out in my little intelligent brain and he's small enough for me to figure out, well, he's no longer big enough for me to worship anymore because there's, there's no distinction between me and him. He's God. And so the ways of God are ways that require faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And there isn't always an element of mystery because of the wonder of who God is and the ways he works. So we walk by faith and not sight. And whenever we don't understand something that God is doing or something about God, we have a choice. We can complain or we can choose to trust until God makes it clear. We can complain and harden our hearts and be offended and stumbled when we don't understand what's going on or we can commit to trust and say, Lord, I will just trust by faith until you make it more clear and I will continue to believe though I don't see and though it doesn't make sense to me. Verse 44, Jesus then makes another startling statement which is the first of a beginning of a number of hard things he'll say here. He says, no one can come to me, verse 44, unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up the last day. So notice what Jesus is saying here, how in salvation there is a necessary work of God, a required work of the Father to actually draw people by the Spirit to come and follow Jesus. He is saying here that no one can come and be a follower of Jesus Christ or even believe in Jesus Christ without divine help to begin with. And the reason why is the Bible teaches, apart from what anybody wants to think about themselves or the world may say, the Bible teaches that all of humanity is so ensnared in the quicksand of sin and spiritual death and unbelief that unless God were to draw us by his spirit, unless God were to initiate the process, we are completely lost. We are completely helpless spiritually. We don't have capability. Even if we desire, there's nothing within us that would make us seek God. We are depraved and, and we have no spiritual life. The natural man, the Bible teaches, is born 
in their existence depraved and dead spiritually and deprived of any spiritual light. We're deprived of any spiritual life. The scriptures say that we are born spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. Our understanding is darkened, being separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in us, because of the blindness of our heart. We all begin life without hope and without God. That's how we begin life. And the last time I checked, I'm not a medical professional, but the last time I checked, dead people can't help themselves. Dead people are unable to bring back their own life. Dead people need outside assistance to be awakened and brought back to life. If somebody in this room this morning codes, and I hope you don't, but if you die this morning and you're laying there, you need outside assistance if you're dead. You need the outside assistance of someone else if there's any chance you're going to come to life. And the same is true spiritually. The Bible teaches we are dead spiritually and, and, and we need the outside assistance of God to initiate the process if we were ever going to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Though the salvation process includes man's participation at one point as we choose to believe and exercise the faith that even God gives to us as a gift and we choose to exercise the gift of faith to accept Jesus Christ, salvation's origin and initiation starts with a work of the grace of God. It's a work of the grace of God being merciful and drawn. We have no capacity or moral or spiritual inclination to seek after God. There is no capability within us to seek after such things or to choose to follow Jesus. Left to ourselves, we would be lost. It is necessary that there be a divine intervention of the loving grace of God for anybody to be saved. The only reason anybody is saved because God mercifully took pity on our soul and divinely intervened and the Father drew us by His Spirit and began a work in our life to draw us to Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you, that is important to understand because that should make us then extremely humbled in the salvation process. That we realize apart from the grace of God, I would not be saved. There's no way it would be. The Bible tells us that we are saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. Can you imagine being in heaven after having lived on this earth around one another, people in heaven boasting about how they got saved? Well, yeah, I was... Yeah. All right. God says, no, in heaven there'll be no boasting because everybody realized the only reason I got saved was because the Father drew me was because God had pity on my dead soul and the work of God's grace divinely intervened however it was in your life and the Father and His love began drawing us. And this is what Jesus is saying here. No one can come unless the Father who sent me draws him. Again, the only reason today I'm a follower of Jesus is because the Father drew me to Jesus. He initiated the process where I would have never come at all. And this shows us really, I think, a, a wonderful way to remember how to pray for those who are lost, how to pray for those who are not yet saved. Perhaps to pray, Father, please draw them, Lord. Draw them, Lord, draw them more by the power of your spirit. Please don't cease that drawing work of your spirit in their life. Draw them, Lord, wrestle with their heart, awaken them to the reality of their need for you. Jesus goes on, verse 45, to say, and it is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So Jesus quotes here a scripture from Isaiah 54. He paraphrases a section there to validate what he's just stated in verse 44, that no one can come unless the Father has drawn him to be a follower of Jesus. He quotes here the scripture to show that this truth is even in something that's found in scripture, that God had predicted in Isaiah 54, Jeremiah references the same type of thing, how God himself would take personal responsibility to actually work in the heart and soul of every person to reveal the truth and speak to people and teach them spiritual things, that they would be taught by God himself. And... 
particularly in relation to Jesus, that God would speak to people by his spirit, by a work in the inner person, in their conscience, revealing to people, causing people to believe and accept the truth about Jesus and then prompting people to respond to Jesus. That's why he says, verse 45, therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the father, Jesus says, they are the ones that come to me. Those who have heard what the Father is saying, those who have learned and believed what the Father is teaching them. He's indicating here that those who've listened to God's voice and received what God says to their inner conscience will demonstrate that by coming to Jesus Christ. And so therefore, anyone who has come to Jesus as Savior and Lord indicates that they are a person who has properly responded to what God has been trying to teach them their entire life that they need Jesus. Again, remember Peter had that experience. Many of us know it, Matthew 16, where Jesus said to them, who do you say that I am? And Jesus, at that moment, has Peter say one of the most wonderful things. Peter responds when he says, who do you say that I am? Peter responds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says this, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter, the only way you knew that was because you finally heard and learned what the Father in heaven has been trying to reveal to you your whole life about who I am. And again, Jesus testifies of this reality that Peter had been taught by God. Therefore, everyone who's heard and learned from the Father will come to Jesus. Verse 46, he goes on to say, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, referring to himself. He has seen the Father. Again, Jesus associates himself directly with the Father, indicating his deity and how he is the only one who has ever seen and experienced God the Father directly. Why? Because he came directly from the presence of the Father. Jesus was the personal representation of the Trinity, the Godhead, the representative of heaven on this earth to reveal God to mankind and to reach mankind. And Jesus here is again indicating how he not only is God, but he came from heaven to connect with and reconcile humanity back to God. Again, 2 Corinthians tells it this way. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19 says, Now all things are of God. Listen to what it says of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. That is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Do you hear what that says? God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The way that God chose to reconcile a dead, lost world to himself was by, in the life of Christ, being fully divine and fully human, reconnecting divinity and humanity through the life of his son jesus christ that is the reason why he came to give forgiveness to give eternal life that's what he says in the next verse verse 47 most assuredly i say to you he who believes in me again jesus points to himself has everlasting life now in this discourse already jesus has said this multiple times he keeps restating, not because he's lost for words, he keeps restating and reemphasizing this main point that eternal life is received from him. That to have the abiding eternal quality of life, which if you're a Christian this morning, you already possess. He says, he who believes in me by faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, he says, has everlasting life, that is, possesses everlasting life. Everlasting life isn't some gift you get someday. If you have Jesus, you already have everlasting life. That's why you're so confused and feel weird on this earth. Because the abiding, everlasting quality of life lives inside of you and you're living on this temporal earth and yet you're a citizen of heaven and you already have eternal life. And that's why you feel like a foreigner here. Because you already have everlasting life abiding in you. And it's only the earthly body you have now that prohibits you from being able to experience the fullness of what that's one going to be. And again, where does that come from? Do you work for it? Do we earn it? Do we achieve it? No, Jesus says, he who believes in me by faith alone 
has everlasting life. He goes on, verse 48, to say again, repetitiously, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, Jesus said, but they're dead. In other words, it sustained them temporarily, but that was just bread that, that helped them temporarily. This, verse 50 says, is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. So Jesus says, even as that physical bread, the manna nourished your physical life, it was just temporary. So if Jesus is partaken of, he can supply in the same way spiritual life and life that lasts forever. He's comparing or contrasting here between that Old Testament manna and the bread of life that he is, how when they partook of the manna, they ate it, but they ultimately still died. But Jesus says, whoever partakes of me, the living bread, receives me into their self in the same way that bread is ingested inside. He says, the wonderful thing is what I offer is much better. It's life that will last forever. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. Abiding life, eternal life. He says, verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will, look at it, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh and which I shall give for the life of this world. Now, at this point, Jesus here begins to speak in some ways in a figure of speech and he starts to use kind of a startling illustration here which goes into this next section of his discourse. He uses strong language to arouse their attention and the seriousness and the gravity of what he's saying. That's why he says here in the 51st verse, if anyone eats of this bread, referring to himself, he'll live forever. The bread, he says, that I shall give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. So he's speaking of how in his human flesh as a man, he would give his physical life, of course we know, in the death process, suffering and dying for our sin as a substitute. And Jesus says, in the giving of my flesh, in death as a man, as I die on humanity's behalf, he said that, verse 51, is what will give life to the world. Through Jesus' death as a man in the flesh, spiritual life and abiding eternal life becomes available to all humanity. Colossians 1 speaks of this. It tells us there that it pleased the Father that in Jesus all the fullness of God should dwell and by him to reconcile all things to himself. And you who were once enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. Hebrews talks about this, how Jesus' flesh is like the veil in the temple that was rent and torn in two, and that veil separated humanity from being able to have direct experience with the presence of God there in the Holy of Holies. And when Jesus died on the cross, that temple veil was rent, and the idea is God was saying, now access into my presence is available to everyone. And Hebrews says that Jesus' flesh was like that veil that was torn. And as Jesus' body was crucified and as he suffered, the veil was opened up to allow men to have life spiritually, to have access and relationship with God. And Jesus is referring to this here now as he speaks about how he would give his body, his flesh, as life for the world. Verse 52, the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, <clears throat> saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So as they hear Jesus say this, <clears throat> it begins to become difficult now for them to understand what he's saying. And again, it begins to offend their human reasoning. Notice here at this point, because they don't believe, their spiritual understanding is darkened. And as the result of that, they instantly envision what Jesus is referring to here is some perverse form of cannibalism. I mean, you see what they say there, verse 52? Well, this is disgusting. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? How can he give us his flesh to, to feed upon? That's cannibalism. And notice, watch this here. Notice Jesus does not soften his language to pacify his hearers and gain their approval. He wouldn't have worked well in the modern church. He doesn't soften his message to appeal to his hearers' approval. Look what he does, verse 53. Watch this. Jesus said... <clears throat> 
Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. And these things said Jesus in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now, can I just say, wow. Imagine hearing that sermon in the synagogue. Probably wouldn't visit the synagogue in Capernaum very often. Hey, definitely that's not the church for us. Did you hear what that guy said today? Eating his flesh and drinking his blood. I mean, again, we have to be talk about a startling message and strong use of language there. In verse 53 through 56 here, Jesus is indeed using a strong figure of speech referring to the necessity he describes here of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Now, now when I say figure of speech, figure of speech is using words or a phrase in a non-literal sense to add strength and force and impact to what's being said. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's using this metaphorical language to make strong force and impact to what he's trying to communicate. Certainly Jesus is not speaking of literally eating his physical flesh and drinking his blood. He's speaking metaphorically to drive home a strong point. And let me just say this, the very idea and mindset, though it is embraced by some, the very idea and mindset that Jesus was meaning this in a literal sense that we need to partake of his physical flesh and drink his blood to receive the, the life that he offers, that would indicate in order for every person in all generations to eat of the physical flesh of Christ and drink his literal blood, that would mean Jesus would need to repeatedly suffer and repeatedly die again and again and again to offer that. And can I just say, that is a contradiction of Scripture and it denies the sufficiency of the once for all work of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, Hebrews 9 and 10 teach this reality there so emphatically that Jesus, unlike the priests in that day in Israel, who repeatedly offered sacrifices for sin again and again and again, the writer of Hebrews says, but Jesus, he says, does not do this for he offered himself once at the end of the ages to put away the sacrifice of sin. It says we've been sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Listen, once for all. Every priest stands ministering daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. The Bible teaches Jesus died once and that was sufficient. He does not need to repeatedly be broken and die again and again and offer his flesh and offer his blood and offer... The Bible says, no, what he did was sufficient once for all. So the idea to take this and say, well, so that's what needs to happen. We need to keep miraculously recreating the death of Jesus again. And now this is his literal body. Eat his body. This is his literal blood. Drink his blood. That, 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 that is a contradiction to what the scripture teaches and it devalues the tremendous suffering and death and bloodshed that Jesus went through once for all that was sufficient and that caused Jesus to say, it's finished. It's finished. It doesn't need to happen again. It doesn't need for someone to somehow recreate it in their hands through some mystical you know, ritual. It was once for all. Again, Jesus here is speaking in figurative language here to put force and emphasis, just like literal eating and drinking is a way to receive what we need for physical life. Jesus is saying in the same way, metaphorically, this is a strong metaphor. He's trying to illustrate what his life and his death and his shed blood supplies to a person if they partake of what he offers and experience it, 
they'll receive what they need for spiritual life. That's why he says there, as he, again, he's very repetitive in his language there to put force to it. But verse 53, he says there, whoever partakes of him or doesn't partake of him will either have or not have eternal life. He says, if you don't partake of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. But verse 54, he says, if you do partake of the Son of Man, he says, then you will have spiritual life. He says in verse 56 there, that whoever partakes of me, that is his life, his, all that his life offers and his death provides, he who partakes, he says, abides in me and I in him. That as we partake of Jesus, that is how we remain in close relationship with Jesus. As we, if you would, uh, you know, feed upon the Lord Jesus, he supplies and nourishes what the soul needs. As we drink deeply, if you would, of Jesus' life and his death and his sacrifice, that's what revives the spirit of a person and supplies to their inner man what they need. Jesus says in verse 57 there, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. What's Jesus saying there? Verse 50 saying, he said, in the same way that I live in dependency upon the Father for my life, he's saying in the same manner, we are only sustained with spiritual life through the life of Jesus. Do you see what he says there? Verse 57, he who feeds on me will live because of me. He who partakes of me will live because of me. I want you to hear this statement. I think it is critical and a lot of times overlooked. The Christian life cannot be lived independent of Jesus. The Christian life cannot be lived independent of Jesus. Sometimes as Christians, this is kind of forgotten in the midst of our walk. We have to remember, we are not imitating some past religious leader. We are not imitating by keeping standards or trying to act like Jesus. That's not what the Christian life is about. The Christian life is about having and maintaining an ongoing relationship with the life of Jesus, who is alive. It's not imitating some past religious hero and trying to be like him. It is actually having an ongoing relationship with Jesus because we need personally and continually to receive what Jesus' life supplies to us or we can't be a Christian. This is what he says here. He says, anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. This is what John 15 teaches. We'll get there where Jesus talks about this reality of abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine neither can you unless you abide or remain in me. He says this, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. That pertains to the Christian life. Jesus says, listen, without my life flowing through you continually because you remain in relationship with me, you can't do anything. You can't live the Christian life independent of Jesus. So if you're going through all the Christian ethic and the longer you're a Christian, it's almost as if we just want to put it in autopilot. Well, I know some Bible verses. I know the deal. I go to church. I say that, this, that, stand when he does the reading. And, and, and we go through all the motions. And sometimes Jesus says to us like he does to the church of, of Ephesus there, look, I see all the great things that you're doing. But one thing I have against you, you've left your first love. You didn't lose it. You left it. You forgot about the relationship. And you were on your own strength and power trying to live the Christian life. No wonder it's so futile. No wonder it's so empty. And no wonder it's so powerless spiritually. Because we're trying to find within us the life to live for Christ when the reality is, Paul says, it's no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. It's living relationally with Jesus. So important. Again, can I say, the Christian life can't be lived independent of Jesus. Stay in relationship with Jesus. This is what Jesus is strongly trying to convey here. He says, verse 60, that as they heard him say this, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. 
Who can understand it? So as Jesus was speaking in a spiritual way about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, again, they interpret it literally, and as a result, they're bothered and offended because he's beginning to say some kind of difficult things. He's saying some challenging things, and he's putting now personal demands upon the lives of those who would be his followers. And what he is now asking of them sounded hard, and they didn't fully understand it. That's why they say, verse 60, this is a hard saying. Who can understand this? What they're saying is this. He seems to be getting a little extreme here. I mean, who can accept what he's saying? I mean, this is hard to swallow. Again, can I say, because this spiritual life demands faith, sometimes it is going to be challenging. Sometimes it is going to be hard for me, my humanity, to swallow. The commands of God do grate against sometimes my human reasoning and the truths of Scripture supersede sometimes even my little finite mental understanding. Verse 61 says, When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? So he understood they were stumbling, beginning to grumble over his words. And why are they grumbling? Because Jesus sees that what's beginning to bother them now is he is beginning to indicate to them that I'm not just going to be your social problem solver. I'm not just going to be your bread king. I didn't come just to make you have a better life. Follow Jesus. He'll give you a better life. He'll just make your life wonderful. Every, that's, that's all you just follow Jesus and you'll have a good life, better life. He'll fix your problems, give you what you want and, and make you a happier person. And it's the key to success in life. And Jesus is now saying, listen, I'm just not your social problem solver. I'm just not going to be someone who you're going to use as a cosmic genie. And, and Jesus here isn't giving them exactly what they want, but now he's actually beginning to demand something of them. He's actually calling them, in a sense, to something that sounded a lot like, here we go, the C word, commitment. And to a lot of people, to many people, as we'll see going on, to many and most people, commitment is almost like a curse word. It chokes people. It offends people. Human pride and selfishness does not like the thought of anybody expecting something from me. You're going to expect something from me? You're going to require... You're going to demand something from me? Who do you think you are? Nobody demands something from me. Commitment? Uh, again, most people want, let's just be very frank, most people want a spiritual life that is easy, it's convenient, it's accommodating. If Jesus accommodates my schedule and it requires little, I'm on board. And so that's why Jesus says here, does this offend you now? Does this offend you because I'm saying that I would require something of you? Verse 62 says, what then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? So Jesus says, if you can't accept these truths, how are you going to handle the greater truths? If you can't believe I came from heaven, he says, how are you going to accept and believe one day when you see me ascending back into heaven where I was before? Verse 63, it is the Spirit, Jesus said, who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit. And they are life. So here Jesus clarifies, very evident, that what he has just been saying about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, it was not literal, it was spiritual. It was spiritual metaphor. That's why he says here, look, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. In other words, what Jesus is trying to say, it's not my physical flesh that you need to feed on. Because he says, if you took a bite out of my arm, it would profit you nothing. <laughs> But he's saying what you need is the spirit that I supply because it's the Holy Spirit. It's the spirit of Christ, he says, that gives you spiritual and eternal life. That's why Jesus says there, the words that I speak to you, again, they're spiritual words. Being literal, he says, there, the words that I speak are spirit and they are life. They're spiritual in their meaning and if received by a person in faith, Jesus' words sown into the human heart would bring forth life, spiritual life as they're embraced and believed in faith. Man, what, what great statements there, however, in verse 63, of even just general principles, again, of the spiritual life that Jesus reminds us, it's the spirit that gives life. 
The flesh profits nothing. The Christian life cannot be lived through efforts of the flesh. It's a life that must be lived by the power of the Spirit, being open to the power of the Spirit and how the words of Jesus are spiritual, life-giving words. Boy, that is so true. To, you know, to, to read the declarations of Jesus, to read the words of Jesus, if you believe them and respond to them with your heart, those are life-giving, life-changing words where Jesus says, but if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. And that's given life to people to realize, okay, the reason why I've never been able to get free from what I'm doing or who I am or what I hate or this bondage is because I've been trying to get free my whole life myself. And then Jesus says his words that give life, but if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And people believe that. And all of a sudden, liberation comes into a person's life. And they're delivered and they're changed because of that life-giving power. Well, Jesus then says, verse 64, there are some of you who do not believe. Again, he knew those who were there. For Jesus knew from the beginning whom they were that did not believe and who would betray him. And he said again, notice, therefore I have said to you, repetitious from earlier, that no one can come to me unless it's been granted to him by my father. Now, verse 66, notice the crescendo of all that's been happening here now. <clears throat> verse 66, from that time on, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. From that time on, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. That is probably one of the saddest and kind of most sobering verses in the Bible there that we read here that at this point when it became difficult and challenges arose, when people's understanding was being challenged and they didn't have all the explanations of what Jesus was doing, it says here, look at the text, not some, but it actually says many. That is the bulk of the crowds. It says at that point who had been following him and what he was doing, they chose to turn back and they walked with Jesus no more. They turned away from him. And that is always a reality and opportunity for all people because God's created us with free will. And unfortunately, some people will do this. Unfortunately, there will be those who go back to the old life and don't continue with Jesus. For a time, maybe they followed after Jesus. They walked with the crowds of Christ. They were casual observers. And as long as everything was going okay and there were no challenges, no demands... It suited what they wanted. They were willing to keep following Jesus. But then something happens at some point, as it does in all of our lives. Something happens that perhaps is a little hard in their life or challenging or there are even challenges. Imagine this, among the crowds of Jesus' people. And that happens and they become offended and because they are not truly committed to Jesus himself and they're not devoted to Jesus, they as a result decide to turn back and they no longer walk with Jesus anymore. And they abandon Jesus. And they turn away from Jesus and walk away with him and choose to no longer be his follower. Verse 67, Jesus then said to the twelve who he had chosen, do you also want to go away? That's sobering. You would think Jesus would get insecure and plead with the twelve that he chose, please, don't you abandon me too. But Jesus does the opposite. He offers them the same opportunity and personal freedom by saying to them, look, I'm not forcing anybody to be a follower. I wouldn't force anyone to be a follower. Love always extends freedom. And Jesus doesn't force people to follow him, nor does he lower the expectations in order to obtain or retain followers. He allows people to decide if they want to continue following him. He says to the disciples, okay, everybody else is departing. Do you want to go away? Would you prefer to leave and not follow me as well? And you know, this morning, perhaps it's very possible. You've been dealing with some challenges, hard and difficult things. Maybe you're dealing with something that's even hard to understand and you've been pondering, walking away from the Lord. And because Jesus loves you, he would say to you, do you want to go away? Do you want to choose to go back to the world and not follow me anymore? Well, look, verse 68, Peter answered and said, Lord... To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In other words, Peter simply says, Lord, 
where else are we going to go? What, are we going to go back to the world? Is there somehow something better there in the world? I think Peter understood this reality. Look, yeah, it may be difficult sometimes to follow Jesus. But quite frankly, what's not difficult in life? Is it easier to live without Jesus? Is it easier somehow you're going to find somebody else with a better mantra? With some better philosophical ideas? Is there really a better option once you know the truth? Are you going to be more happy going back to error? And going and living in emptiness? He says, Lord, where are we going to go? At least with you, we know we have the words of eternal life. It may be hard now, but this is all the hell we're ever going to experience. Lord, you have the words of eternal life. I'll deal with a little bit of hell now to have heaven forever. And he says, where are we going to go, Lord? Is there really a better option? And Jesus answered and said, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Boy, he knows how to just speak the truth. (laughs) He spoke of Judas Iscariot, notice, for it is he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Notice that Jesus recognized, even among that twelve, who he had chosen to be his unique followers, who he had poured his life into, He had invested so much into the twelve as intimate followers. He'd entrusted them with so much, yet even Judas still, as one of the twelve, would betray him and abandon him. After all Judas was exposed to, I want you to think about this, Judas was deeply entrenched in the things of the Lord. He heard all the teachings. He got all the best sermons. He saw the miracles. He was exposed to everything. He participated in the things of the Lord But in his heart, he was not genuinely committed to Jesus. And when a certain point in time came, that was revealed because he chose his own self-interests over honoring and serving Jesus. You could say very clearly that Judas was a casual observer like many in the crowd, and he was not a committed follower of Jesus Christ. And this morning I would ask you, by God's Spirit and through this lengthy text, what about you? Are you a casual observer? Are you going to follow Jesus and follow Jesus' crowds as long as it's easy? As long as it works out for you, adds a little benefit into your life, and you can understand it all, and it happens just the way you want it to, and and you'll be a casual observer? Or do you want to be a committed follower that says, I am in no matter what? And Jesus, I will follow you when I don't understand. I will follow you when it's hard. I will follow you because you are Lord of my life. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, can I say to you, may God help us to love commitment. It's a beautiful word. Commitment. Today, make commitment to Jesus Christ in your heart. And it will help you to be a more committed person, even when times are hard, with others in your life as well. God bless you. Let's stand. You endured that lengthy section of Scripture.